Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution and learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. My name is Tom Land, a zoologist and natural history filmmaker. And I'm Rebecca White, and I'm a PhD student in genetics and evolution at the University of Exeter. And welcome to the first episode of Darwin's Black Book in 2021. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Woo! 2020 is over. Uh, we wanted to actually start with something a little bit different on, on episode five. We wanted to with this podcast not only open up science and evolution but also talk about some scientists and conservationists that are not often talked about especially people that have been historically overlooked so when we talk about big names in evolution just because of the nature of the subject we're in they just tend to be people who are long dead and historical names but here's a modern name that's still very much alive professor joseph l graves jr and becca what about professor joseph graves is so important and why do people need to be aware of him? So before we get into who Professor Graves is, the motivation for this episode comes from earlier in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement came back into the limelight after the unlawful killing and over-policing of black people. At this time, the scientific community decided to dedicate a day to BLM by pausing their own normal experiments and their own research and using that time to read up on prejudice in their own specific fields. So, as I myself am an evolutionary biologist, my supervisor sent me a paper to start me off on the day. And this paper was by Professor Graves. So, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to take this day, especially as scientists? Well, for one, clinical genetics lacks standard definitions and protocols when it comes to using diverse people in experiments. So, this includes evolutionary data and looking at medicine. And these inconsistencies um, come from different definitions of race, ethnicity and ancestry, and this can make results confusing, difficult to compare among studies and less accurate. And from reading Graves' reports, I learned that one of these main issues is with the word race itself. Yes, people around the world have different genes. You can do ancestry of 23andMe to see that. I've done 23andMe myself. But the problem with the word race is that it's been given a hierarchy, especially socially. So, uh, looking into this a little bit, his comments on the word race, it basically described it as a population that has a significant genetic uh, definition or difference from another group, uh, to the extent that this population, this race, can be considered as a separate subspecies to the rest of the population, uh, which is basically just a smaller taxonomic grouping within a species. A subspecies is evolutionarily on its way to becoming a new species now in homo sapiens which we're going to be talking about humans there is no subspecies there are more genetic differences within a population than between populations around the globe professor graves actually looks at drosophila and uses this as an example when he was describing this phenomenon in the fruit fly drosophila between groups genetic variation was around three to seven percent but within actual each group that genetic variation increased to twenty percent 
So it's not really comparable. Within the group itself, there is so, so much more genetic variation. Um, similar in humans, there, there's so much genetic flow across our world that, yeah, definitions are so, so muddy and there are very few lines about what that actually means. It's been argued that one of the reasons these problems exist is a lack of diversity in the subject of genetics and evolutionary biology itself. And it turns out Joseph Graves was the first ever black person to have earned a PhD in evolutionary biology. And I wanted to learn more about him. And it turns out he has a pretty cool story. So who is Joseph L. Graves Jr.? So Professor Graves is an American scientist born in 1955. Originally, he was from a poor family and his parents didn't know how to read. And the school in his hometown was also really racist, but luckily he managed to be able to teach himself. The kindergarten school he went to, so the reception we'd call it in the UK, was particularly bad and they wanted to declare him mentally retarded just so they could put him in special education and make him someone else's problem essentially, but luckily they didn't manage to do so. However, despite avoiding this, Graves says all black children in his school ended up in the lower track. They separated students by academic ability into groups for all subjects, but all black students were put in lower ability classes for no apparent reason other than racism. But by graduation day, years later, Graves had risen to be among the highest ranked students in his high school. He was unstoppable. And then he went in to get a, a Bachelor of Arts in Biology from Oberlin College in Ohio in 1977, then spent two years working on tropical disease at the University of Lowell in Massachusetts. He then went on and did a PhD in Evolutionary, Environmental and Systematic Biology from Wayne State University in 1998, where he worked on longevity and Drosophila. A long list of accolades. It's quite I incredible. I finished. There is more. <laughs> okay, right. He then, <laughs> he then was accepted for the President's Postdoctoral Fellowship at the University of Carolina from 1988 to 1990, where he continued his work on Drosophila, particularly looking at extended lifespan. And he worked with Michael Rose, who is a highly distinguished professor who works on the evolution of ageing. And I was quite excited when I read this because Michael Rose's publications have already been influential to my own research and my PhD. And then Graves went on to join the faculty himself in 1990. So as terms of a, of a CV, a list of experience, that is, that is quite incredible for any academic. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Especially from the background that he had. And today, he's the Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Biological Studies at the Joint School of Nanoscience and Nanoengineering in North Carolina, where he works on the genomics of adaptation, as well as the response of bacteria to metal and antibiotics, which seems like quite a far reach from the longevity and the fruit fly work, but the skills are pretty transferable from, from what I read. And he also looked at bacterial communities under different conditions, especially in pig poop. Um, to be used as a manure fertilizer, <laughs> which again seems different, but transferable skills. And if you look today on his Google Scholar, he has over 100 publications Whoa. across evolutionary biology, genomics, nanoscience, and of course, social construction of race. He's also appeared in six documentaries where he talked about his science research. And even though he must be super busy with all his, his roles, He's still absolutely writing about race. And last year he wrote African-Americans and Evolutionary Science, where we have been, what's next in the journal Evolution, Education and Outreach. So by any means of any scientist, he is a particularly busy, busy person. 
but just the level of the range of things that he's been doing um just in research has been quite incredible honestly just looking looking at everything he's done yeah completely and especially starting where he started and he's and he's still taking the time to write about all these social issues that i'm sure he would have he would have definitely have faced um and of all his articles my favorite was one in 2015 and it's my favorite because it's really well written and it also has these really beautiful illustrations and it's called race does not equal dna and it explains the difference between the biology of race and the social construction of race so if you want to read some of his work without anything being too heavy I recommend this one. It's great. And in terms of media and journalism, so, you know, he's still not done. <laughs> Last year, he wrote an article for CNN, the American News Network, about James Watson. So James Watson, you may recognise his name. He's credited for discovering the double helix structure of DNA with Francis Crick, based on the work of Rosalind Franklin in the 1950s. But in 2019, Watson came out and said something quite racist. Oh, Watson. He said in a documentary uh, that because of DNA differences, white people and black people have different intellectual capacities, oh, which will always give white people higher scores in IQ tests. Oh, no. um, of course, Graves, being the powerhouse that he is, immediately jumped on that <laughs> and wrote back very rightly, Watson's racism is a product of his time, but that doesn't excuse it. And his racism contributes to a pervasive institutional racism still steeped in the United States. And also, I think that's an incredibly, incredibly well put response. Yeah, very powerful. But as well as research, Graves has also been an active participant in the struggle to protect and improve the teaching of science in the public schools. He advocates discussing human biological variation and race in high schools and colleges. So these opinions like Watson's, hopefully people understand why that's just not true. So you've already had the taster of the sex section uh, from James Watson, but specifically, why does Graves need to write about race? So, Becca, let's talk about black Americans in evolutionary science and minorities. So I have got some statistics for you, some percentages. Um, I focus mainly on, <laughs> on the US bioscience workforce, as this is where yeah. Graves himself is based. And also where the majority of the research is based. But also when we're going into this, a lot will be said about the American uh, education system and American um, science structure but this should not be just applicable to the us it is also a lot of other places in the world as well as the uk we are absolutely not exempt from this yes exactly so the us bioscience workforce is 70 percent white i'm disappointed but not surprised um and there are three <laughs> mm -hmm. percent black people within this workforce uh, however when you look at evolutionary yeah. biology so our field is in mine and tom's field it mm. is 0.3% black people. Ah. That, so mm. we are slacking. We are slacking in reforming the systemic racism in our own field. But what does this mean for the field itself? So first of all, we're going to be missing out on some brilliant scientists who didn't get to the level of academia for some really unfair reason. How can countries like the US produce their best work if they are systemically limiting some of their best people and they're poorly represented? And Absolutely. are we going to get bias in our data? This has been argued a lot, but I'm not going to go into this now because this is going to come up a lot in a special episode dedicated to research ethics in the future, which will hopefully 
COVID depending, be our first live recording, which will be in July 2021 at the Research Ethics Conference in Exeter. That's great because I've actually noted some stuff down specifically on uh, bias. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> onwards. Go wild. <laughs> Go, right. So, yeah, he um, he's famous for, for, as we mentioned earlier, trying to determine what race is, clarifying that to the general public because everyone has a slightly different definition in their heads uh, for, for what it actually means and what it means for those that are impacted uh, by that definition that some people hold. Skin colour, he, he mentions in one interview, is governed by exactly six genes out of 30 to 40,000. That isn't many, but it's just those six genes which determine what your skin colour is. And It's interesting, because why are we so obsessed <laughs> with something that's controlled by... I mean, that's probably just the geneticist in me thinking, that's such a small amount of genes, and yet it just dictates so much of society exactly i mean your eye color is dictated by more, more genes than that which is which is quite incredible so perspective yeah i wanted to talk about one of his papers actually which which came up it was the kind of factors influencing a minority student to study evolutionary biology he's done a lot of work on this on why people of, of specific minorities do not go in for evolutionary biology specifically and he makes a point, a really important point, that, again, as you mentioned earlier, Becca, a wider study from a wider diversity of, of people will actually improve the level of research being done. Of course it will. It's just basic stats. If you increase the sample size, you're going to get more representative. Exactly. Of yeah, exactly. <laughs> D diversity in our society is increasing. <laughs> and to advance the scientific community, we need a population of scientists from a diverse background. It isn't... Absolutely. It's not rocket science, but the fact that this paper actually needed to be published on this says a lot. Also, I mean, I've had a lot of people say this about um, women in science. People with different backgrounds who've had different experiences throughout their life will just bring completely mm. different things to research, different creative ideas, different approaches. Exactly, different ways how to research and, and ultimately might actually read something differently, a different interpretation from the results. Which I think is really, really important. So in this study, he he surveyed. It's quite a small uh, survey, but he it was just a preliminary one for a much larger study. 184 people were surveyed. 48% were Hispanic. 20% were African American. 10% European American. 6% American Indian, and 11% Asian and Arabian. And he was looking at the personal factors about why people choose the degrees and the careers that they do and what drives them to do that and it was influenced from immediate social circles so family and friends the teacher influence and thirdly pop culture actually has a massive influence on what you do subconsciously the Hispanic group was mainly influenced by um, if, if going in to join a specific discipline, if another member of the same ethnic group was in that career path already. And this is a trend across almost every single minority group that he was looking at, uh, Graves and his team. Uh, Native Americans are shown uh, in his study to actually have been exposed to evolution much later than when compared to European Americans, as well as African Americans being driven to a decision more by uh, religion than any other factor. By exposed to evolution, do you mean when it came became part of the syllabus in school? Became, uh, became part of the syllabus okay. in school, when people started around them, started talking about it, when they were actually introduced to the concept of natural selection uh, and evolution. And then he noticed a lot of these 
underrepresented minorities were going into medicine. And these surveys suggested that actually the importance of evolutionary biology on the global scene was not passed along, uh, passed across at all. It hmm. was... Wow. Which I think is absolutely interesting, and it's something that is incredibly important. It's the underlying factor about most of biology. Uh, so it should, should, have, should have been passed across. And those in evolutionary biology tended to be less religious than when compared to other parts of pure biology. But basically, what he, exactly, but what he found in this study, the, the conclusion of it was people of the same ethnic group as you in a specific field will make that field more attractive to you, regardless of religion. If you see people that have the same background as you doing what you want to do, of course, that's going to make that more attractive. If there's no one there that you can relate to, why would you try and go for it? That makes sense. Um, um, there's a programme called Skype a Scientist where scientists can sign up and then have a video chat with a classroom um, anywhere around the world. But they're really hot on trying to find scientists that will look like the students so they can see someone... Mm they're immediately more comfortable with and think oh if they've done it yeah. they look like me i can do it too maybe absolutely and it, it's the most important group that he found this in was the one that actually was, was one of the lowest in evolutionary biology it was the african-american group regardless of religion if they see a member of their own ethnic community in a job a career path that they've been interested in but maybe didn't see as feasible they will absolutely go for it in the future but he yeah this this paper scientifically proves that people need role models that they can relate to on a level of personal experience and again this might seem like it, may, it makes sense that it's common sense but this paper needed to be published i think a lot of people that. like avoiding thinking about that just because it's not you know it's a problem that like i myself of course didn't cause but if i'm not doing anything about it i'm part of that problem as much as I want other people from different um, ethnicities to feel welcome, something has to be mm. done. It's not a passive thing to be able to do. And those already in the subject in their career path, of course, you have, yeah, you can do nothing or you can actively try and help encourage others from, from different groups exactly. to, to get, get in there. And that paper was uh, Mead et al., uh, Graves was the supervisor on this one, I believe, from 2015. It was Factors Influencing Minority Student Decisions to Consider a Career in Evolutionary Biology uh, from the Journal of Evolution, Education and Outreach, Volume 8, Issue 6. But yeah, he kind of left with the thoughts of he wanted, he wants to understand why underrepresented minorities aren't choosing evolution and finding ways to get these groups interested, ultimately, uh, to improve the diversity of the scientific community, which will only increase its strength and the ability for a greater range of thinking and and research capability so i think it's really important what he's what he's aiming for and what he's driving for and another little bit that he did in another paper very briefly uh, his paper and in, in his own words um he describes uh, I, I quote here in this commentary, I intend to provide the reader with a brief description of the cultural experiences of persons of African ancestry in the United States and how these have played a role in maintaining their underrepresentation in evolutionary biology careers, providing the reader with the current state of underrepresentation within the field. So he's discussing the past, uh, what happens in, in in his field from his own experiences and what needs to be done in the future and how to make real progress towards meaningful racial, ethical and demographic 
change. And that was actually from the paper that you mentioned earlier, Becca, that was Graves um, Jr. 2019, uh, African-Americans in Evolutionary Science. Yeah, so the final thoughts on that were basically accepting that Eurocentrism is no longer the criterion for inclusion in evolutionary biology and evolutionary science, which most certainly was the case back in the late 1800s when it was being developed. So now we thought it's time to shine the spotlight on Graves' actual evolutionary science itself. So we've each picked one of his papers that we like the most. There are loads more, don't worry, um, if you wanted to read some. So as I mentioned earlier, he looks, well, he looked at ageing evolution before he got to his current role. And I look at ageing evolution. Hey! Ooh, so I kind of had to choose one of those, <laughs> didn't I? Um, except he uses uh, fruit flies as opposed to nematodes, which if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know. I quite like. Um, so he also looks at microevolution, genetics, and nanoscience. So feel free to go check that out too. I've got a good nanoscience one that you can like. You can. Uh, oh, fantastic! Read as well. I can't so, wait to hear about yep. that. But first, mm-hmm. 2004. Well, at the University of California. So where Groves focused on the evolution of aging, especially in fruit flies, and he produced many, many results from his work. And I'm going to focus on one in particular because this paper was hefty. So he'd already been part of earlier studies um, in 1988 and 1990 that figured out these flies that started ageing later seemed to be able to fly for longer, mm. which is a nice conclusion. But he wasn't done there. He decided That's... to build on that. Okay, okay. So he got together a team of other scientists and decided to investigate the link between this longevity and this flight duration. How and why is there a link? Why is this happening? So one important thing to know about this is an important part of flight in these flies is having a supply of glycogen. Now glycogen is their fuel for flying. It's pretty important. So Graves and his team became particularly interested in the glycogen levels in the flies. But Becca, wait, what what actually is glycogen? So glycogen is a chemical structure. Basically, it's just made up of lots of glucose molecules together in a chain, glucoses and sugar. Um, glycogen is just how it's stored in the body of animals, fungi, bacteria, including you and me. Um, so it's definitely an interesting one to look at as it's a conserved method of energy storage across many, many kingdoms. Just big old bags of stored glycogen. Yes, stored glucose as glycogen. Exactly that. So this was the focus. So we had these, these groups of flies that he was going to do this experiment on. He named them flies B and flies O. Is that not the most easiest way it's to name two groups? Yeah, it's, it's been, I, so the way you've written your notes, I thought it was like there's B and then there's O and then there's, and it goes to B. And I thought it's you naming them Bob. Oh, honestly, I, can call I them read that as you've Bob been... and Oberon. <laughs> so the bee flies start aging earlier; they get older quicker, right. and the O flies start aging later. Okay. They get older later on in their life. Uh huh. Also in the O flies, that they have a longer flight duration. So they age later and they can fly for younger, longer when they want to throughout their life. Cool, also, more air miles. Yeah, more air miles in the, the O flies. And the O flies also tended to be bigger than the <coughs> B flies in both males and females. So if you age later, you're better at flying and you're a bigger fly. Right. 
He then found out that healthy O flies have more glycogen storage than the B flies. There seems to be a connection, right? Okay. So he thought that it's time to look at starvation resistance. We need to fly oh, these flies to exhaustion <laughs> and see how their glycogen reserves are doing. How hardy are they? How far can we push them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the logical next step, of mm-hmm. course. Yep. I think so myself. <laughs> and they found that the O flies survived this better. So okay. the O flies, they age later, they can fly longer, they are bigger, and they can survive starvation better all because they have these better glycogen storage reserves. He then thought, well, that's great. So now I'm going to try and dry them out and see how resistant oh, they are to yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Oh, you know what, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he used actually a chemical you might have heard. Have you heard of dry right? Uh, um, what does it do? <laughs> Maybe. Have I taken it? Should I have taken no, it? No, no, don't, don't no? take it. Don't, don't, <laughs> definitely don't, don't take okay, it. Don't, don't, um, okay. It's an all-purpose no, drying no, agent for efficient and drying wrapping oh. of air, industrial gases, refrigerants, and organic liquids and solids, so please don't drink it. <laughs> no, I have not heard of that, nor have I ever drunk any of it. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> so, in response to this, the O-flies were ever so slightly better than the B-flies, but honestly, neither of them were that good at surviving this this extreme chemical none of them survive longer than 20 hours that isn't a massive surprise i'm not gonna lie (laughs) but they found a really good and really important reason for this after Mm -hmm. being exposed to dry right all of their glycogen reserves specifically completely plummeted to zero so glycogen is very very important in this and that that's quite interesting yes and that has a big link therefore to glycogen reserves and aging and survival Okay. So why? Well, proximally, we've talked about physiological difference in the ability to be able to resist desiccation, so the, the drying out by the dry right, between mm. O flies and B flies are probably related to the amount of glycogen normally stored in their tissues. So all about keeping those glycogen levels up as the fly gets older. But why could this have evolved? So this has a lot to do with the evolution of lifespan. Some species evolve to live longer and some evolve to live shorter. So overall, while the glycogen seems to have some sort of link into helping them be more hardy and helping them live longer, living longer isn't always advantageous to the species. Sometimes it's better to have a shorter lifespan so you can reproduce quickly, among many, many other reasons. Mm. So there's definite trade-offs involved here. So there's a lot more to explore. So Graves have tapped into something really, really cool. with a lot of promise as well and a lot of directions that can Absolutely. go Absolutely, and I'm is... really excited to see where this research goes next, even though I believe he's not working on this himself anymore. I'm sure there are people okay. still going into it somewhere. And yeah, I'm excited to hear what um, that you can, can drudge up from the uh, pits of research that are science for Absolutely. the next episode. Absolutely, and there will be a whole episode <laughs> dedicated to the evolution of lifespan and evolving to live longer and shorter and why and what's still doing that today. That's fantastic. Um, That's really, really interesting. Yeah. So. It's interesting because he's actually done loads of stuff with Drosophila as well. He's done some stuff on um, stress resistance, increasing longevity in Drosophila. Um, it's Rose et al. 1992. Uh, he's done population effects on aging in Drosophila as well. And um, yeah, he's done some really, really amazing things. Now, he is a lab-based scientist and I am a zoologist that focuses preferably on big animals because I can see them. and I focus on behaviour, basically. It's... <laughs> slightly different field so i had to go out of my comfort zone for this one and i'm glad i did because it was fascinating when i got into the nitty-gritty details of it 
So I chose the evolution of nanoparticle resistance in E. coli. And ultimately, why it matters. Why do we care about this? Um, turns out we should really, really care about this. Like, <laughs> like really care about this. But I'll get to that in a minute. So a nanoparticle is a particle which is between the size of uh, 1 and 100 nanometers. So really, really tiny. Very Humans, tiny. very tiny. Humans make a large quantity of nanoparticles, things we call engineered nanoparticles. They're made in labs. And these can alter cells, atoms, molecular structures. They are found in nature as well as, as, as when we make them. They are primarily used when we make them as biocides, which is, which is, which is kind of pretty lethal. It, biocides destroy target organisms and you can basically build a biocide to kill a specific thing normally deemed dangerous they will just annihilate an entire population of something but they are also in things such as sun cream paint and hmm. cosmetics wow so they're everywhere <laughs> they are they are everywhere everything Why have i never heard of these things they, okay you've definitely used them uh, they've you've put them on your face yeah. you've probably written with some you probably you've, you've surrounded in, in nanoparticles specifically engineered nanoparticles and they're also in, in medical terms known as miracle antimicrobials known for killing things very very quickly very very efficiently everything is killed and the target cannot become resistant they cannot become resistant what yeah that's wild but can they ah uh, <laughs> plot twist so uh... <laughs> this is the research what you wanted to do Can because a, a one-trick pony of um, the miracle bullet of it kills everything and nothing can become resistant is, is fantastic. If you had that sort of power, uh, that sort of, of capability, then... I am rather sceptical, though, about from what I know about evolution of um, antimicrobial resistance. Um, yeah, uh, specifically, yeah, because microbial resistance is becoming a bigger thing and a bigger issue, especially especially in, in medical circles. So to have this sort of, of capability is extraordinary. Mm. So most of these are, most of these nano engineered nanoparticles are heavy metals or metal oxides, which include silver, gold, zinc, titanium dioxide, zinc oxide, you know, common everyday items. But that's the thing. They actually are common everyday items they're surrounding you constantly and making up quite a lot of the the items that surround you so oh wow it's thought that being a biocide these engineered nanoparticles um because they affect uh, several different aspects of a bacterium that immunity was impossible kills it from many different angles very quickly they can't physically uh adapt to it a lot of barriers to overcome if they were going to adapt to become resistant yes exactly that so he tested an e coli population with the catchy title of k12 mg 1655 uh catchy <laughs> i'll never forget that name not quite as simple as uh, b and o but you know uh they tested the effects of of exposing these populations of e coli to silver nanoparticles now e coli isn't known to contain any silver anyway which makes them perfect for this experiment they've had no previous exposure and therefore they couldn't have adapted to uh silver in the past they're known as basically naive e coli which i think is kind of cute naive e coli um <laughs> So what he did, he basically raised colonies in different conditions, some being exposed to this spherical silver nanoparticle and some not. Uh, so those that are exposed to the, the, the nanoparticle, the silver nanoparticle, when their colony is developing in very, very low uh, 
concentrations. Uh, the individuals within that population will basically um, find it very hard to uh, propagate, to have offspring in, the, in that first generation. And those that are most successful will have offspring which are also quite successful at breeding and, and having offspring in a very um, toxic environment with lots of sylph nanoparticles. Those that aren't very well adapted will not uh, propagate that much, will not have many offspring, and therefore over time the offspring of the most successful individuals will more and more and more of them until most of the population is made up of the ones that are that can exist in very mild concentrations of silver nanoparticles and that's natural selection so wow yes i understand yeah but that was just to get a a a just so you have a naive population which hasn't seen the nanoparticles and a population which has seen them and has become some sort of of adapted to their presence mm. and then he tested these populations so he found the population um he found the concentration of silver nanoparticles, which wouldn't kill the bacteria immediately, which is about 50 micrograms per litre. That's the maximum you can go for that at the highest tolerance. And they, he kind of left them for 24 hours to, to do what they do, which is about six and a half generations for E. coli. Okay. He then, after 24 hours, increased the concentration to 100 micrograms per litre. And of course, that would wipe out quite a few of them. And... He would see how they grow um, as the ones that did survive, managed to survive, basically, again, had more offspring and began to grow out the population again. And he left them for another 90 generations. Then he increased the concentration from 100 to 125 micrograms per litre. Considering he started off with 50, this is a significant jump and it's become extremely lethal with silver nanoparticles. He left those for 125 generations. Now... What he found is those that had been exposed prior to the resistance uh, resistance study, those that had seen the silver nanoparticles before, have increased their culture size by 250% as compared to the <gasps> ones, the naive E. coli, who hadn't seen them. So after determining the genes involved in the mechanisms of survival, Professor Graves and his team determined that resistance to the nanoparticles, that's, I quote, resistance couldn't develop to <laughs> required very few mutational steps it was not a long way from uh, naive naivety in e coli to very very resistant can i just say as well this is kind of the same concept as what happens if you don't take your antibiotic prescription properly this kind of thing can mm -hmm. happen yep just throwing that in there as i like to do my <laughs> deficits <laughs> Yep, take your antibiotics to the end of their course. That is, but it is, it's exactly the same concept. It's why L MRSA is a thing in hospitals. Yes. Uh, it's a superbug. And and these, this E. coli is becoming resistant to something that was previously thought they couldn't become resistant to. So interestingly, when you're looking at these microorganisms normally killed with silver nanoparticles and, and now cannot be killed with what was once a powerful biocide. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, which is great fun. Wow. Um, so they were not only passing their resistance genes on vertically, so to their offspring when they bud in my toes, basically they have this resistance gene passed on to their offspring, but they also do something called horizontal gene transfer. So some individuals will form a little tube with their neighbour of the same generation, called a pelis, and actually pass on their resistance genes to their neighbour which doesn't have it 
at all. So not only are they giving it to their offspring, they're just giving it to anybody they can find. And that sounds like cheating. <laughs> and that's why it's so difficult, because they're incorporated, they then incorporate it into their genome and pass it on to others. So you can't just cut off it and stop them from reproducing, because they will also just pass it to everyone on the same generation level as them. I have a question. Mm. So I'm not... Because I don't fully understand the way the nanoparticles kill the E. coli, I know that sometimes um, genes can be taken up horizontally when a bacteria dies and it explodes and the genes are just kind of floating around. Other bacteria can then take them up. Do you know if this is the same case? That's a really, really interesting question. The silver nanoparticles in this case, the actual mechanism for destroying the microorganisms are not fully known, but... Huh. What they do it probably has something to do with the discharge of an uh, a, a silver ion and a disruption of the cell membrane. So basically, it's not oh uh, able to function properly. And I don't know whether it splits and explodes, but it, it's certainly a, a very feasible way for for that to continue. Which is also terrifying. What makes it more terrifying is silver nanoparticles are used on medical grade. Clothing, so surgical gowns, masks, gauze, anything that you think, sterile strips and stuff like that, it's all got silver nanoparticles in it to prevent anything from infecting it because nothing can become, um, nothing can adapt to it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's concerning for sure. And yeah, I'll leave you with the final line of this paper uh, that Graves concisely concludes it with. It's a, I quote, this outcome does not bode well for the sustained use of AGNPs, silver nanoparticles, as miracle, in quotation marks, antimicrobials, end quote. Oh my god, he's so good at writing. <laughs> it's just very concise, just saying, right, we think, this is a, we think this is a miracle cure, but we really need to reconsider. We cannot be using this for anything, because the more we use it, the more likely... Uh, uh, that something out there is going to become resistant to it and then it's only a matter of time before that it, it passes on resistance to... You need to use it very carefully. Exactly. With the same for everything, use it for the things that desperately yeah. need using, medical things. Don't just use it on crisp packets and uh, a whole host of other food items and stuff. <laughs> it's, it's just little things like that which something is become going to become immune to it if it hasn't already. Uh, and if you're interested in reading up, it, it was a long paper but certainly fascinating. It was called... Um, so that's Graves Jr. et al. 2015... Rapid evolution of silver nanoparticle resistance in E. coli, Frontiers in Genetics, Volume 6, Article 42. So that was an absolute winding road covering quite a few both social and scientific issues that are quite present in our society. Yeah, and um, I personally am really glad that Joseph Graves got to where he is to be able to do the amazing science that he's done. Um, so what can actually be done, though, to maybe look at minimising some of the, the hurdles he had to overcome for the future? So if you want to know more about him and, again, what he's, his experiences and the things that he's learned along the way, he's got two books out. Uh, the Emperor's New Clothes, Biological Theories of Race in the Millennium, which was published in 2001. <laughs> Fantastic title. And the second one, 2005, which I'm actually really excited to read. The Race Myth, Why We Pretend Race Exists in America. But again, it's important to remember it is not just in America that these issues are very much present, um, also in the UK. But 
yeah, the two papers I've mentioned, if you want to know more about his work in, in the science and the frontier of science, that really the cutting edge that he's working in at the moment. So I, I was quoting Mead et al., uh, which Graves was the supervisor on this one from 2015, factors influencing minority student decisions to consider a career in evolutionary biology. And then um, the other one that he did on the topic, which was Graves Jr., 2019, African-Americans in evolutionary science, where we have been and what is next. Uh, that was in evolution, education and outreach. But yeah, educate yourself. Uh, read a book because I certainly am. It's it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Another cool paper on this topic um, that wasn't by Graves, but by someone called Seng et al, which is T-S-E-N-G, 2020 in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. This one's called Strategies and Support for Black, Indigenous and People of Colour in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And this one's more aimed at these groups to help them navigate the world of academia. And it was a really interesting read, even as someone who isn't from one of these groups. But if you're more interested in learning about historical black people that have been overlooked in history, in evolutionary biology, um, new stories are being uncovered every year. So I'll start you off with one. Look up John Edmondson. He is the man who taught Charles Darwin taxidermy. That is an incredible taxidermy, story. Yeah, taxidermy was very important to Charles Darwin. That's how he got his samples from the Galapagos and around the world back to England to be able to come up with the theory of natural selection. So very important He has figure. given a mention in um, The Voyage of the Beagle as well, but I think it's an absolutely... He's a, he's a very important figure in, in... That deserves more recognition in modern biology. And that brings us to all we've got for you in terms of Joseph Graves for this episode. But, but there's more. we're not done yet because what's the time for? Animal of the episode. Whoop whoop. Um, last year, last la, yeah, last year we were talking. <laughs> That's such a dad joke. <laughs> Two weeks ago last on Christmas Eve episode, we were talking about. Uh, the northern saw wet owl which was found on the Christmas tree that was your animal and mine which was the spirit bear yeah both really promising candidates mm-hmm. for, for, for this what is the version. quintessential animal of Christmas 2020 do you want to know the results Tom because I have them here I have not seen them Amy with them <laughs> what have we got so results so far you've won two and we have drawn one yes it's been very good this one yeah for you <laughs> The winner of this one was my Northern Soul oh, Wetter. Okay, congrats. With 62%, yeah. 37% oh, for Spirit Bear. To so, be fair, it, it was a good story and it was a very sweet animal, so. Nothing against Spirit Bear, they're still incredible. Yeah, they're still my Christmas animal, so you know what? Yep. So now that brings us to you've won two, I've won one, and we have drawn one. Ooh, I'm okay. Catching up. Cool, right. This is. Uh... <laughs> This is interesting. So that brings us to this this episode's animal of the episode. Mm-hmm. So, as Joseph Graves wasn't a zoologist, and most of the animals featuring his work we've already mentioned, which are um, which are tiny microscopic fruit <laughs> flies. Yes, yeah, uh, um, yep. I've chosen an animal that was roaming around where he was doing his PhD in Detroit, Michigan. And I know that's a tenuous link, but hey, it paints. A it's picture. also the link that I've got. So that's fantastic. <laughs> you read my notes, didn't you, before you picked your animal? I might have done. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've chosen mm-hmm. the coyote mm. Canis latrans. Which is basically the smaller, feisty version of the wolf. Yes, it's a canine, so it's in, in the dog group. And they are native to North America. Mm-hmm. 
And coyotes are in every city, in every county in southeast Michigan, including Detroit, where Graves was doing his PhD. And the adults are 60 centimetres tall and can run up to 70 kilometres an hour. For anyone who's wondering, that is 43.5 miles per hour. That's quick. You can't outrun a coyote, apparently. (laughs) But while I was researching these um, on Google, I came across something really cool. Um, If you don't know, Google has this augmented reality feature where you can put an animal in your living room or wherever you happen to be. um, And you can have a coyote looking through... If you look through your phone, it can be in your living room. So I put a coyote at the end of my bed. (laughs) It was amazing. I sent a picture to Tom. He got quite confused. (laughs) I was concerned. Quite. Hang on. There are loads of animals on there, but the coyote was there too. So can I just interject really, really quickly? Yeah. So I just Googled the speed of a roadrunner bird versus yeah. the speed of a, ki- of a coyote. Wily coyote. Because you've got wily coyote versus <laughs> the roadrunner. Meep, meep. Meep, meep. So, as you say, the, the coyote can run at 70 kilometres an hour, which is 43 and a half miles per hour. The roadrunner runs at a top speed of 32 kilometres per hour, which is only 19 or 20 miles per hour. That might explain why the Roadrunner was always trying to outsmart rather than outrun the wider coyote. Yeah, the coyote could have yeah. literally just run him down. Anyway, I just... He wasn't the smartest, though, was he? We're not arguing about this now. Anyway, <laughs> coyotes in real life, uh, not in cartoons, are most active at sunrise and sunset. And the midday roaming indicates that they're seeking food for their families. So although they're part of the canine dog family, coyotes are not pack animals and they tend to travel in family groups. Although they have been known to attack humans and pets um, as such a potential danger to people, especially when I was Googling it, so many news articles came up about these horrible attacks. But risks are actually in real life pretty minimal and the majority of attacks could have been prevented through modification of human (laughs) behaviour. So that's my animal of the episode, the coyote that was wandering around in Detroit when Joseph Graves was doing his that PhD there. That specific coyote. <laughs> so again, I've gone along yes. a very similar line, getting an animal from Oberlin, Ohio, where he went to college, specifically Oberlin College. Um, the I've actually gone with the state bird of Ohio because it is just incredible. It is the northern cardinal, cardinalis, cardinalis. It's... I, it, it's recognisable to quite a few people. They just, I don't think they know its name. It's um, it's a very bright red bird with a little kind of tuft of hair, uh, of fluff on its head, um, with a little kind of black bandit mask on, with a red uh, yes, beak as well. Uh, they are very recognisable when you see them. Uh, they're very visible in the snow. That's when the males get very very bright red plumage. Uh, they uh, and the females have a slightly lesser um, tawnier kind of pinkish vibe to their to their plumage as well about 23 and a half centimeters long and yeah the, the males are incredibly territorial they have a quite clear song that they use to defend against other males as well and something just quite cool about them they extract carotenoids from their diet which is the same pigment that makes makes bullfinch chests go red and flamingos go pink which is quite interesting but the reason why i chose this bird um I think it is it's so incredible in terms of evolution. The, number one, the female, it's a songbird, and normally in passerine, the group that they're in, uh, passerine songbirds, only the male sings. But in the northern cardinals, the females also sing. Now, to us, the songs sound entirely the same, but on, on a very fine level, undetectable to us, 
the song is actually different between the sexes. Normally the female sings from the nest to the male to Oi, come and give me and the babies some food. Um, <laughs> stop slacking. That's such a <laughs> uh, The male then feeds the female from beak to beak, which is, is quite unusual, which is, is quite sweet. Um, the second thing, evolutionary very important, is they have evolved biological suppression to West Nile virus, oh, which really? is actually ravaging its way through Northern America. It's the same family that causes Zika virus. Um, and is transmitted through birds and mosquitoes, and it affects humans and horses, and this West Nile virus causes, unsurprisingly, West Nile fever. Is that a flavina virus? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Top marks for you. Uh, it is indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so I'm, I don't even know how you know that. I... <laughs> it threw me off guard. The, um, yeah, so 80% of people who have West Nile uh, virus don't have any symptoms 20% have a fever and 1% have extreme meningitis and perhaps encephalitis as well it's quite bad for that 1% this species basically suppresses the disease to such an extent biologically in, it, in its own body when they get bitten by a mosquito that has it and it's transferred into their body as a vector um, when another mosquito comes along and bites it the blood that that mosquito takes up actually has so little West Nile virus in it that it, it's hardly transferred to another animal when that mosquito bites someone else. So as a vector, they're actually containing the virus uh, by having, uh, yeah, super suppression um, in their own body, which I think mm. is awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, and th there you go. The Northern Cardinal is my animal of the episode. So there you go. It's the Northern Cardinal or the Coyote. I'm putting the poll up on Twitter right now as you're listening to this. Where can we be found on Twitter? You can find us at, at Darwin Black Book without the S because we ran out of characters or the hashtag, hashtag DBB. And you can find us on Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts and many other podcast players as well. I actually wanted to make a really quick note about independent listeners. We are at 99 independent listeners. It's quite cool. If you're, this is your first episode, welcome. Hope you enjoyed it, but you might be number 100. Yeah, it really, we really do appreciate it. We have put a lot of time and effort into these, so we're really glad that people are listening to them and hopefully learning a thing or two. And enjoying them, yeah. Also, thank you, as usual, to the British Ecological Society for supporting the development and startup of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. And if you want any more information on the podcast, you can head to our website at bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And for more information about me, you can find that at tomland.co.uk. Also, just uh, wanted to say happy birthday to a friend of the podcast, Claire Gosling. Thank you very much for listening. Happy birthday, Claire. Have a good day. And just wanted to leave you with a quote from Professor Joseph Graves from 2019. Evolutionary biologists might learn from anti-racist struggles of our society to move towards a more diverse and inclusive discipline. Thank you very much for listening. See you next episode. Goodbye. Bye.